What is happening, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 545. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean Luc Godard to Jean Luc Picard. Today we've got returning guest Dave Eves for a part two on Carl Theodore Dreyer, the part one of which was way back in Wrong Real 451, which I think oh was God. like <laughs> two years ago. So it's long overdue. But Mr. Eves, welcome back to Wrong Real. James, thank you for having me. Great to be back on Wrong Reel. Yeah, you always pitch these fantastic topics that allow me to really indulge in my obsession with the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, because no matter how much film changes and evolves, and it's a technological medium, it's always evolving. I do have just an overwhelming affection for those early masters, and I definitely count Dreyer amongst the ranks. Everybody's list of who are the great masters from that period is going to be different, but I think if you're not at least considering Dreyer to be one of them, well, then you just haven't paid close enough attention to his films. And I think it's interesting because the three films that we're talking about today, these are the ones that I initially wanted to talk about last time we did a Dreyer episode. We had an issue of availability because a little service called Filmstruck had just shut down, and these three films are really only available in the U.S. via Criterion streaming services. They are on out-of-print discs. They have not had U.S. Blu-ray releases. I have a really great U.K. set that has uh, a bunch of short films. It has a documentary about Dreyer. But not everyone obviously has a region-free player. So uh, I'll, I'll use this as my rallying cry that we need these things on disc again some way in some fashion. So- in that you're such a Criterion buff, explain to me how it works, because I remember in the early 2000s, there was a gorgeous box set that actually had precisely these three movies. Exactly. Why is it so difficult for Criterion then to restore and enhance and get access to these movies for a second time and repurpose them for Blu-ray? I don't know. I, I don't understand what the uh, what the delay is. Maybe it's something that they're planning for a rainy day. Maybe they're waiting on better elements to do their own restorations. I mean, the... the, the uh, BFI set that I have looks pretty good. Gertrude especially looks good, but Day of Wrath and Ordet, they're a little rough, so maybe they're waiting for a better uh, transfer to come along for them to restore. For all I know, they're working on it. How would but, you rate the transfers that are on Criterion Channel? Because that's where I watched all three of these for this episode. So I initially watched these three films back in the day when Criterion was on Hulu. And they looked fine to me then. It's probably as good, if not better, than – no, it's probably as good if not worse than the Blu-rays that I have in front of me right now. But I have not watched them on the Criterion channel. Sometimes they put updated uh, transfers, so I'd have to go and check it out. Gotcha. Well, I love that. I mean, the Criterion channel is such an amazing resource because obviously in addition to having the movies, you've got all these great interviews and documentaries. There's a 30-minute rant by him. It's basically a video essay that he was he recorded for radio in 1958 where he just talks at length about uh, about movies and his technique and there's a cool documentary about the premiere of Gertrude where they're interviewing like Clouseau and Godard and Truffaut and they're all there and they're all interacting with him and there's this great moment where Clouseau's introducing himself to Dreyer and Dreyer's like oh I know your films and Clouseau kind of starts laughing he's like he's like yeah I know your movies as well but you can just see the admiration just coming off in waves so yeah Criterion Channel very cool platform and I think that that also speaks to the very interesting nature of Dreyer, because he's most well known for Passion of Joan of Arc, which is this monumental film from the 20s. That's the one he's uh, th- that's the one that made him a master. Even if he never made another film again, he'd still be regarded as a master because of that. And then you have him 40 years later hobnobbing with like Jean-Luc Godard and uh, Anna Karina. <laughs> 
at, at a film premiere. Granted, he's an older man then, but the fact that this guy has been uh, pretty consistent, he made basically a film in every decade from the 1910s until the 1960s, but not too much else. Yeah, well, I want to read a, a great quote by him uh, that I, I, I transcribe while listening to the interview from uh, 1958, and I feel like it really gets to the essence of what his appeal is and why his appeal has endured from the silent era up through the 60s. But he wrote, and this reminds me a little bit of what John Ford said about like when somebody asked him when they're out on a desert, like what are we going to shoot out in this wasteland? He said, the most interesting thing of all, the human face. Dreyer says, nothing in the world can be compared to the human face, a land which one can never tire of exploring, a land with a beauty of its own, be it rough or mild. In fact, there's no greater experience than in a studio to witness how the expression of a sensitive face under the mysterious power of inspiration is animated from inside and turns into poetry. I was like, whoa. It's like you just in a few sentences kind of summed up your whole career. And I think a lot of times people make the mistake of kind of, I don't know, just saying, that, oh, he's austere and he's Danish and he's you know <laughs> all about this transcendental kind of uh, religious ex spiritual experiences and, and all this nonsense. I'm like, you got to look past all of that. I mean, that's very regional, but I feel like there is this enormous universal appeal because if you can understand passion or the human emotion or the beauty of an image, then you can understand drier. And I just totally reject this idea that there's some sort of hump or hurdle that people need to get past in order to get into his work. Well, there definitely is uh, a, a seeming hurdle with these three films, because unlike his silent films that are very fast paced and move very quickly, these are really, really slow movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, contemplate it. That's, that's a very, uh, <laughs> a very good way. He would argue that he does it on purpose, because in his mind, it builds intensity of emotion and suspense and like tension in the image. But I think for it's people, where, for people right. where it doesn't translate, they're like, I'm gonna fucking kill this guy. I mean, like the most controversial film of his career, Gertrude, somebody uh, wrote this reaction and uh, right after it came out, and they said, uh, Dreyer has gone from serenity to senility, not a film, but a two hour study of sofas and pianos. Now there are a lot of people out there who disagree so yeah, even in the '60s, obviously, film's always changing, and every de every style, every decade has different styles. But yeah, so clearly, this is one person who, in uh, Esquire magazine, or which is uh, Cinema '65, who was unable or unwilling to get over that hump. And, and of the three films we're talking about today, two of them had very mixed re reactions when they first came out because of their contemplative nature. The one that was an instant success, and because he only had really two instant successes in his career: Passion of Joan of Arc and Or Dead. Which and is my new else. favorite word for word. I mean, we were talking on uh, Skype right beforehand, and I said <laughs> word, and you wrote back ordet. Ordet means the word. And the fact that you were able to turn like 70s black slang into 50s Scandinavian cinema, <laughs> that is why Dave Eves gets to come on Wrong Reel anytime he likes, because he can come I'm up with lines that my, like that. My, my pre-podcast joke in Skype made it to the air so that everyone could appreciate it. Uh, I, I, I thought it was just a stroke of genius. because I've mentioned this before in episodes where you've appeared where you managed to talk about old films constantly without making it feel academic or stuffy or, I don't know, at arm's length. You bring the humor and the emotion, and I feel like that's the way old movies should be explored. I think a lot of people make the mistake I think almost like it's like a cathedral at a great distance that you're admiring. It's like, no, like roll up your sleeves and get in there and like, you know, talk yeah. some shit and have fun with it. These are these are still just movies. That, that, that's the thing that I think a lot of people have a, a difficult hump to get over. And yeah, there, there might be things like, oh, it's not in color. Oh, it has subtitles. Those might be things that 
that seem like barriers, but they're not big barriers. Once you get into the film, once you really get absorbed into it, and I think all three of these films are very absorbed. Uh, it's very easy to just get lost in them because they're just so good. And there's a reason that these things are considered classics. It's not because some dude in a with a monocle and a top hat said, yeah, you gotta, you gotta watch these in order to be a film guy. No, it's th that they're good. That th They've stood the test of time because they are good, not because someone assigned value to them that doesn't exist. It's because there is an inherent goodness behind the filmmaking, behind the stories that are being told. And like you said, it's the human face that this isn't foreign because it's still a story about people yeah. and people's emotions don't change no matter where you go. It's the same throughout. And also, Everywhere. the best way to test if something's still relevant, put it on a big-ass screen and see how an audience reacts, because I went to a late-night screening of Day of Wrath at the IFC Center in the early oh, 2000s. Jesus. and I'd seen Ordet. So I had a, a vague idea of what to expect. But this was the pre-cell phone era, so thankfully distraction-free, no no lights blinking in the audience. It was a great just it was a great movie going experience, but you could have heard a pen drop. The audience was spellbound and almost kind of wrecked and traumatized by the experience. And I remember as we were walking out, I was like I said I made some kind of offhand joke about it, like uh no, now we can all leave and go, like you know, kill our, kill ourselves together as a group or something like that. <laughs> and someone kind of like react, like lurched away from me, kind of violently, like they weren't ready to go there yet and like allow humor back into their lives because they were still completely under the movie's spell. Yeah, so Day of Wrath just completely destroyed this audience. And uh, yeah, I, I still vividly recall that evening at the IFC Center. See, now this is where I might be a bit messed up because these are three pretty dark movies. I'm just like la la la. I, I'll watch more of them. Like. 
<laughs> it, it doesn't really it's not that it doesn't affect me it does but it doesn't bother me in that sense i'm like yeah let's do more of this let's see more old ladies get burned at the stake same thing happened to me in college where i would be laughing at the sheer joy of just the combination of images and sound and just eating up some of these old movies and i remember it was maybe it was little caesar some it was a film in my history of film part two class which was like early sound and i was laughing just with joy and a, another person interpreted that as i was laughing sadistically as something <laughs> horrible is happening to the characters and i think that sometimes gets the laughter can get misinterpreted if you're just yeah. getting swept up in a great movie going experience yeah and these are all three great movie going experiences and i'm jealous because i've never seen any of these on the big screen but they would definitely be i, I think especially with slow movies it's very important to kind of be as completely absorbed as humanly oh, possible yeah. and if you're watching at home Turn off the lights, get your iPad three inches from your face, put on some headphones, turn up really loud, and have no distractions, and just let yourself get sucked in. Yeah, that's definitely the best way to experience something like this, on the biggest screen possible, in the darkest room possible, without anything else going on. Yes, yeah, so the film's just to remind people that it's Day of Wrath from 1943, we have Ordette from 1955, and we have Gertrude from 1964. So we're just going to go one movie after another. And uh, But yeah, you mentioned seeing... Um, seeing uh dryer in the theater i took my mother to see the passion of joan of arc at the moma <laughs> and i because she wanted to see an old movie i was like all right well, and she lives or she has an apartment in museum tower which is right above me i was like well downstairs they're showing one of the greatest movies ever made she's like oh what's it about it's like joan of arc she's like joan of arc i love joan of arc let's go <laughs> but what she didn't know was that it was you know a silent movie and uh, you know she grew up in the 50s and 60s and loves things like the sound of music but watching dryer films was different from what she was expecting and yeah like five minutes in in a deep 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 slumber but i was just in a state of ecstasy getting to enjoy mm -hmm. passion of joan of arc on the big screen so I've, luckily i've had two drier experiences in the cinema nice well cool let's talk about day of wrath 1943 a movie made in denmark during the nazi occupation prior to dreyer fleeing to sweden but he managed to get the movie made and you can read this movie a lot of ways given the uh setting in which it was made but i think even if you divorce it from the historical setting it's still an absolutely riveting movie about the 1600s and a woman being accused of witchcraft and laying a curse upon a family so for people out there who have not seen this and i think I think it's just an astonishing piece of work. Depending on my mood, I might say it's my favorite of the three. But really, yeah. Well, because I had that great movie going experience. Yeah. That, or not shouldn't say taint. It has a huge it impact on my it. impression. Yeah. But for people out there who have not seen it, how would you characterize or make the pitch for Day of Wrath? Do you like <laughs> very? It, it's a movie about repression. It's a movie about emotion not being experienced, and maybe the people that you look at as being a free spirit, you might just get accused of being a witch and burned at the stake. That's kind of kind of what's going on here. And something I did not realize until literally just doing some last minute research. This is partially based on a true story of the most famous uh, witch in Denmark history who was burned at the stake, and she was married to. No, I don't. Yeah, she was married to a clergyman whose uncle was a bishop, whose uncle died, and she was accused of killing him through witchcraft in order to allow her husband to become a bishop. And after wow. her, after her husband had died, she became a wealthy widow. But everyone thought that she was a witch, and later was accused of witchcraft again, and of course burned at the stake. Yeah, I mean from the early 1600s to the mid 1700s. 
thousands of women were burned alive under suspicion of witchcraft. And sometimes all, I mean, there have been a lot of great movies and a lot of great plays about this. All it really took was just the accusation and people mm-hmm. would just get so swept up in the excitement of getting to burn someone alive. Like, yeah, fuck yeah, it's a witch. I mean, it's just, it's, it's easy to laugh now. And actually, I shouldn't say it's easy to laugh now in 2021 because we still do like digital uh, like <laughs> witch hunts. However, I would much rather be the, the victim of a digital witch hunt than an actual witch hunt. Yes. <laughs> no, his, like uh, mob justice and hysteria, it's, it's, it's a human thing. It's it something is. people do, especially if it is something. And what, what's really sad is for that time period, it's typically just like, oh, this woman wants to think for herself. She's a witch. Oh, she wants to actually be with a younger man instead of an old bishop that doesn't actually really love her. She's a witch. Or in this case, at the very beginning of this movie, we have an older woman who's just selling herbs yeah. to treat ailments, and uh, that's not good. You can't do that. Absolutely. Well, she has this interesting line early on where she says that she's giving her herbs that grew under the gallows and that their power is in evil. But you can't quite tell. Is this like – is she a snake oil salesman saying this to the customer? Or like, ooh, I'm getting like the special herbs from under the gallows. Or is it something that she really believes? We don't really know. And I think the whole movie kind of paints it in that way. I, I think you can look at it through a modern lens and say, yeah, there's no such thing as witchcraft. These are just a bunch of people getting accused of doing things. And there's points where characters truly believe that they have powers. But really, it's like, is that just coincidence? Is it just because maybe this guy was attracted to you? Uh, to, to take a step back, what this movie's really, really about is a woman, a young woman who is married to an older man who is in the clergy. I believe he is a bishop. Uh, and... Her mother may have been accused of, witch, of witchcraft at some point, and her current husband saved her in order to marry this lady. Yeah. And the real trouble begins. Like true scumbag behavior under the guise of doing the right thing. Yes. And this guy's son is coming back to stay there and has never met his new mother, which gets a little bit incestuous in the way they excuse me, in the way they point that there. But uh, she falls in love with the son. And she really wants to have a relationship with him, but she's obviously bound to this older man who uh, does not necessarily uh, is not able to meet her needs. Does he does not satisfy some of her very physical cravings? She's always saying things like, "Like embrace me, like make me happy," and he's like, "No, no, no, we're not gonna have any of that." It's like, "Oh my god, like what what is going on here?" <laughs> and, and for a movie from the '40s that does not really say it, that this is a very outwardly sexual movie. That's it's very heavily implied of all these things going on. Well, only Dreyer knows how to do this sort of thing. I shouldn't say only, but one thing he excels at is just a still image of a woman with like the wind howling outside, glaring at somebody with like unbridled passion where nothing really is happening. And yet passion and desire and emotion are just exploding forth from it. And that's like, he's able to create this incredible feeling of tension from a still image, which is a very tough thing to do. And it's not accidental. Like, there are some people who don't really spend a lot of time or energy thinking about how they're going to frame or shoot a particular uh, shop. I was reading about some of the um, accounts from some of his collaborators about how he would shoot. And this is uh, an account from when he was shooting Ordet that he would basically rehearse his actors all morning. And then he'd use about 20 lights to light up a scene very specifically. And he'd set <laughs> As opposed up a, to like two or three, which was commonplace yeah. at the time. And then he'd record a few takes at the end of the day. And so he would get his one shot. It would be a one long shot 
per day. And so every single thing that makes it into his movie, like the, the frame, there's nothing accidental. He's got complete and total rigid control, but that's why you feel this inexplicable emotion from something that should be kind of uneventful, but in the hands of another filmmaker. And something I think is also important to, to, to note here, if anyone listening has never seen a drier film, these are not melodramas. People are not overacting, maybe a little bit in Gertrude, maybe a tiny little bit in Gertrude. But for especially Day of Wrath and Ordet, it's, and not to make it pun here, it's, it's kind of dry in the performances. It's, it's almost subdued because, like I said, especially with Day of Wrath, it's about people that are kind of hiding those emotions below the surface. It's about repression, uh, I, maybe with Ordet as well, maybe with all of them. And there's something still that explodes from it in this very subdued, very uh, underperformed performance because of everything else. It's that been described as very Lutheran cinema. <laughs> yes. And, and to go back to what you said, a lot of people call his films austere. I don't think that's wrong, but I know how, like you said, that might be like, oh, why do I want to watch an austere movie? But that's it's part of the charm. It's part of what makes it work. Yeah, it gives. I think the the Lutheran austerity gives it a lot of its flavor. But then mm -hmm. the movies are of such power that they transcend those trappings. And so I think yes. it, if by a superficial read or a very thin, shallow read, the movies might fall into that trap. But these are also movies that filmmakers like Lars von Trier rank among his favorite movies that he's ever seen. I mean, Lars von Trier, mm -hmm. his I think one of his favorite movies ever. Is Gertrude like, whoa, the guy who made Nymphomaniac likes Gertrude? Those are two different movie-going experiences. But Dreyer is the real deal, and he's been inspiring film historians and film critics and filmmakers ever since. And uh, I promise it's the last quote that I'll read, but uh, my favorite film historian, <laughs> David Thompson, who's been my favorite film historian since my 20s, he uh, wrote this paragraph, which I thought was incredible about Dreyer's greatness and so on and so forth. But he, uh, at the end of the paragraph, he just says, To say that Dreyer's concerned simply with the life of the emotions is to rescue him from that northern recess where he still sadly remains and put him where he belongs, in the company of Mitsuguchi, Vigo, O'Fools, Renoir, Rosalini, Bergman and Godard. So this is when when I read that line, I was like, "Whoa, okay, this is a film. This is a film writer who has steered me toward a lot of really good cinema." And that's when I really started to look at him with uh, fresh eyes. And also, like Paul Schrader wrote that great book, um, Transcendentalism and Film, which is all about Bresson, Ozu, and Dreyer. So yeah, the shelves are breaking under the weight of all the great books written about Carl Theodore Dreyer. Oh, yes. And I think what something that also kind of sets him apart from a lot of those filmmakers is the fact that his filmography. He's so small. Yeah, like, very active in the 20s. I mean, he like, he came roaring out of the gate. And then the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s, due to historical trends, as well as just not being the world's most bankable director, he was like making a lot of like short subject documentary films and like like travelogues and things like that. And then it would basically have like a feature, like Vampire, Day of Wrath, or Debt. And these are all, I mean, if you're going to make a movie a decade, those are really good ones to make. Yeah. <laughs> but sadly, his output from the 30s through the 60s is sparse. And part of what didn't happen, uh, the, the making of Vampire, which is the last movie we talked about in our previous Dreyer episode, he ended up in a mental institution from the exhaustion and stress of making that. Uh, he moved back to Denmark. He wasn't getting the uh, the praise and the 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 what, the resources he needed to make a film, so he went back to journalism. And then he finally made Day of Wrath during the Nazi occupation, which was understandably. A lot of his friends said, hey, they might look at this as you trying to criticize them. You should get out of Denmark yeah. under the guise that you're trying to sell this film elsewhere. And he did that. When he came back, he made one more film that's impossible to find called Two People set in just like a single room. And it did terribly. And he disowned the movie. 
And then after that, that's when he started doing uh, those short documentaries for a little bit before coming back with Ordet. And then a bunch of other failed projects like uh, uh, there was a movie that he was trying to write about Medea for television that ended up getting made by Lars von Trier using Dreyer's script. Yeah, he wasn't idle. I think a lot of times people look at a filmmaker with like a giant gap, like, oh, well, what, what were they doing the, that whole time? Well, a lot of times they're trying and failing to get projects yeah. off the ground. Like Terrence Malick, during his great period oh, between Days of Heaven and Thin Red Line, he wasn't just sitting on a, on a mountain and meditating. But so, it's, sometimes it's hard to get a movie off the ground, and Dreyer had so many books and plays and topics that he wanted to tackle, but he just didn't have as many opportunities as, as he would have liked. And I, I think it's really telling that someone that made the Passion of Joan of Arc, one of the most celebrated, most written about films of all time, even at its time, that director still struggled to get things made. Yeah, absolutely. Should have gone to Hollywood, baby. And he, he, he tried to go to Hollywood. He went to America. I, when was it? I think it might have been in the 50s before or dead, and it just didn't work out. Gotcha. It makes me wonder, like, if he had, say, gotten a job over at Universal like working on some like really atmospheric horror movies. Obviously, Vampire is a very different kind of movie than the Universal monster brand. I, I would love to see Carl Theodore Dreyer's Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Yeah, but it's like when you marry those um those commercial imperatives with these European sensibilities, sometimes you get these really interesting hybrids. And that's what one of the reasons Hollywood is so cool in the 30s that they had all this great European talent changing all these conventional. Uh, I guess like reading a very popular genres, and so yeah, the, yeah. The, the the sadistic side of my personality would love to see what Dreyer. I'm kind of surprised that it didn't happen after Vampire. You would have thought that like uh, Universe would have been like, "You're coming over here right now. Yeah. You're making the Invisible Man." But yeah, it, 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 that'd be a great like if you wanted to write like an Elseworlds novel, you could write a, a a book about what would have happened if Dreyer had come to Hollywood and and made it big. Well, let's start really getting into Day of Wrath because like the yeah, first half hour. <laughs> yeah, the first half hour is all about the witch and the trial, and I feel like these are the – how people cannot allow this movie to get its hooks into them during these scenes is a total mystery to me because you have this astonishing Gorgon character, the, the mother of the priest Absalom, mm-hmm. who is tormenting and ruling over the, uh, the, the beautiful wife Anne, and there's this – the way she's introduced – Anne is being forced to give back one of the keys in her home to the mother-in-law. And she's like, well, shouldn't I be allowed to have like, keys in my own house? Like, I'm his wife. And she's like, yes, but I am his mother. And the way she's like <laughs> scowling and the way she stares her down, it's like, oh, my God. This is the worst mother-in-law scenario you could ever have in, in your life. She's so overbearing and so attached to her son. And so just she's in her son's business. And whatever she says goes. And this poor girl, Anne, she's probably in her 20s. Her husband's probably in her 50s. The mother-in-law's probably in her 70s. It's just a very cruel, cold household for a, like a full-blooded, full-bodied young woman to, to be forced to, uh, to live in. Yeah, she, she's not being treated like a wife. She's being treated like a servant, essentially. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure – and th- this mother is going to look for any reason to, to get rid of her, essentially. Yeah, she hates her. So that once once this older woman that was selling herbs and is now accused of witchcraft who knew Anne's mother runs in and says, you have to hide me, you can tell, like, she's really torn. Like, this is someone that knew my mother, uh, but if I help this person, it might be the end of me. And ultimately, I think you could say that it does eventually lead to the end of her because in knowing that, she becomes – to aware of like oh maybe i'm a witch and i think that's where a lot of the issues come in in this belief that she's a witch 
And I can't even remember if I already said it in this episode or not, but I think it's very interesting that you could literally look at this film through two different lenses. One, I think if you just take things at surface level and be like, oh, yeah, witchcraft is real. This lady's a witch. She's manipulating the people around her. Or the other way, it's just, no, if you believe it enough, you might make it true because you're just going to perceive exactly. it that it way. Exactly. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And same thing exactly. happened in Vampire. Are the vampires real or not? It doesn't really matter. As long as people believe in both in this and in our debt, no, I don't care how much of an – if you consider yourself to be a non-spiritual person or a non-believer, an atheist, whatever term you want to use – spirituality and religion become real in these movies in ways yeah. that I have never experienced in any other movies. I think these are the most, some of the most profoundly spiritual and religious movies that I've ever seen. And I say this as somebody who was raised Episcopalian, you know, sang in the choir, got uh, confirmed and all that stuff, but in my 20s and 30s drifted away from religion. It was never like, I am now declaring myself apart. Like, it was, there was no big dramatic moment. I just drifted away, so on and so forth. Yeah. But it's incredible Same. to me. <laughs> just how much these movies they don't necessarily make you believe but make you feel the power of belief but it, like or debt especially is the closest to a religious experience that i'm gonna ever have in my lifetime yeah i, I would i'm right there with you <laughs> yeah yeah Even we'll get Vatican's to that like yeah or debt's really good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th this one's pretty critical of the church and even or debt you could say that's blasphemous in a way but it's still even the church even praises it like no this is good um, but I mean, this, this is not exactly the, the day of wrath is not exactly the kindest towards the church. I mean, it's a movie about authority and how life in authoritarianism can be bad, which is another reason why the Nazis probably weren't going to be too kind yeah. about this. And also just shows how in an environment where witch hunts take place, the best thing you can do, the best defense is a good offense, make accusations, get totally on board because you're either all in or you're all out. And some of these early scenes reminded me a bit of the passion of Joan of Arc where, almost all like the horrors of this movie take place off screen. Like when they first find the witch, you hear her moaning in agony, but it's oh. off screen. And then during her trial, you're panning across all these mean old bastards and you're hearing her just moaning and just howling. And then finally the camera gets to her at the end. It's this poor like elderly woman with her dress pulled down to her waist with her arms tied behind her back. She's clearly been hanging by her arms with her arms behind her back from a hook on the ceiling. Mm. And it's one of those things where after enough torture, no matter what they tell you to confess to, you're going to confess. And she keeps begging this guy, um, Absalom, to save her because she knows he worked this scam years ago to get another woman off the hook in order to marry her daughter, Anne. And the big question is, will the witch out Absalom before his peers, or will she allow herself to be burned without possible? He keeps telling her, I'll be brave. You must be strong. And it's like... Yeah, but you're about to throw her on, on the world's biggest pyre that has ever been captured on film. Like they they build it like and that's enough to build like to burn like twenty or thirty people for whatever reason. They just feel like they really got to go overboard with this pile of wood that they assemble for. <laughs> but and that's that's the issue with with just blindly believing something when someone's accused. And like th this this woman, this witch, even though she's being tortured, she has power over Absalom because all she needs to do is name one person. And his world comes crumbling down. Absolutely, people keep saying, "Oh, well, do you want to um, do you want to out any of your co-conspirators?" And then Absalom's always like, "Ah, oh, well, let's uh, let's let's take her over here." Now he's, he keeps trying to deflect <laughs> and delay and like divert people from possibly following that line of thought. Yeah, but uh, speaking of the the burning scene, 
Uh, and <laughs> this can be Trier getting a really good performance out of someone or being really cruel before she is really hoisted up. It's a very interesting burning at the stake scene. It's not like the Joan of Arc scene where someone's tied to a post and just put under the flames. They have her tied to a rack. And they actually left her tied to it while they all ate lunch. So that I, I when read they about went this. To... Yeah, like all that sweat is real. Yeah. Yep. And it's it's horrifying. They lift up this rack all the way up and let it just fall down into the fire. Well, all right. If you were to be burned alive, would you prefer to go the Passion of Joan of Arc route, where they tie you to a stake and pile up the wood around you and then burn you, or I feel like with like the latter approach, maybe it's over faster, but yeah, you're I quite literally going be. face first into like into the blaze. It, it you know, the fire doesn't the fire's already going at the stake you have to wait for the fire to heat to up to get to you and it's kind of like I, first it gets your toes then it gets your feet then it gets your ankles like it's slowly going to work its way up at least by just dropping you into the giant blaze i feel like it would still be awful i mean obviously but uh, but i feel like it'd be over and and hopefully maybe for lucky just the impact alone would stun you or possibly even kill you so oh, that you're, you you're falling on a bunch of sticks you're probably going to get impaled yeah but yeah, yeah it, I, I think it's, it's ruthless. probably the better way to go it's also the more uh, horrifying looking one <laughs> for a film because it's just over so quickly. And I have to wonder if that's how they did things or if Dreyer was more just so like, I already did a big burning at the stake scene. Let's do it differently this yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she kind of curses him at the end about how she's not going to go down in flames quite literally by herself. And that once again, the question is, does this curse actually have power over them or not? Because very yeah. soon thereafter, in one of the most mysterious and atmospheric scenes of the movie, Absalom's one of his like I guess partners in crime mysteriously starts suffering from a malady, and he starts he knows he's going to die then and there. So Absalom has to leave to go be with him during while while he dies, which allows Anne and Martin to have some special alone time with the Gorgon, just staring and scowling <laughs> at them. And this is where Dreyer really has no peer, where you have just these still dark rooms and you're listening to the wind howl and build and you really feel like they're at the mercy of either spirits or nature or whatever, but just they are completely insignificant compared to the powers outside. And then you see uh, Absalom like coming home and stumbling and basically saying that he feels like like death has like walked by and like and brushed by him or whatever. And it makes you believe this shit, whether it like whether you're naturally inclined to do so or not. But here's the thing again, like you said, self-fulfilling prophecy. If you truly believe that someone has this power over you and they curse you, you're going to watch your every step. You're going to feel that any bad thing that happens to you as a result of this and whether good or bad, like earlier in the movie, Anne believes that she has the power to summon people. Yeah. And of course, That's I mean, the big this is thing, coming... the power's invocation. Can you command both the living and the dead to come before you? That's the uh, the big ability that the witches apparently have. Yes, and yet, despite the fact that she clearly had this hot and steamy scene with with the son when they first met, where clearly there's just this huge sexual tension between them, which is different from the play because this is based on a play. In the play, yeah, in the play they were too they were, shy. Yeah, yeah, they were both shy. Whereas in the movie, it's just like boom, sexual tension and shot instantly. totally different when they go frolicking about in nature they're these interesting i feel like close up and medium and like like master shot, shot like all these terms don't necessarily apply completely to dryer's approach but the style of the film completely changes as they're frolicking about in these medium shots or long shots and then like dropping down in the grass for a little uh, heavy petting and that sort of thing mm -hmm. but for a brief shining moment 
the movie almost becomes like enjoyable to watch as opposed to <laughs> terrifying and oppressive uh, and you know, miserable. I, and I think it also comes about as something different because so much of these films are clearly shot in a studio where there's so much control over the environment. Yep. And when suddenly you're outside in, in nature, it just has this completely different feel just being, uh, whether it's in a peaceful meadow or <laughs> taking a wagon home during a horrible storm, it feels less controlled, less, uh, like you said, you're, you're, you're suddenly in, uh, in God's hands now with how things go. Yeah. And I feel like some of these exterior shots almost could have been ripped from vampire in terms of like mm-hmm. that, that, that misty haze over the image and like the use of shadows dryer. He knew exactly what he was shooting and he knew exactly how to get what he wants. Like the beauty of his images are not by accident or chance. No. And something and I'm getting ahead of myself here. Cause this is an anecdote from Gertrude and I think it really speaks to his style. Uh, so when they were filming a scene, it was an exterior scene in, in Gertrude between uh, Gertrude and the, uh, Oh, Erland, the 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 composer. Uh, Dreyer said, "Okay, you guys just take some time, block it out yourself, block it out." And then he said, "Okay, I'm going to bring in my cinematographer. He's going to, you know, figure out how to shoot it around you." And th- th- this is an interview with the actor playing Erland. He's like, "Dreyer didn't do anything. He just t- told us to do our thing." And when he saw it on the film, he's like, "Oh, this is the most Dreyer thing I've ever seen." He is really good at kind of letting things naturally happen. And it still fits his stuff. It's it's he's it's almost like a laid back approach that creates his work. It's not that he's letting other people do it. He just knows that this is the way to get the performance that I want. This is the way to get the images that I want by letting these people that I trust, that I know who they are, let them do their thing. It's going to end up the way it needs to be. Well, what do you make of like the final third of this? Because it goes from being this movie of a, about incredible sexual tension and mutual desire to Martin very quickly and very abruptly turning on Anne and taking sides with the Gorgon, his, his grandmother, which feels like this, I mean, it's like, why, if you're choosing sides in any conflict, why you would choose her side is is a mystery to me. I mean, at this point, if you're not already completely under Anne's spell, then something's wrong with you. Like when they're talking mm-hmm. about how she has that same burning in her eyes that her mother used to, you almost feel like you can see it, like the way she's framed and the way she's lit and the way she's shot. Like, oh my God, I can see the fire burning in her eyes. Oh, so the, way, the way they film her and the way they shoot her, I think also changes throughout the film, especially at the beginning when she has like the headdress on, she looks very virginal, very innocent. Yet suddenly when she has just the dark hair that's very backlit and the intensity in her eyes, she, yeah, she like almost looks machine. evil. Yeah, 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 absolutely. She is like femme, femme fatale territory. So yeah. what do you anticipate? I mean, when the movie ends, I wouldn't say necessarily ends like, on a cliffhanger in an ambiguous way, but do you uh, assume that she she follows the witch into the fire immediately? Oh, I, I assume that she dies. Uh, that, that's my assumption. Spoiler alert! Well. Spoiler alert! I'm pretty sure that as soon as this movie ends, uh, the, the 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 men come in and take her away. Yeah, and what makes the these killings so much more eerie is you have all these boys' choirs singing all these songs about oh, like yeah. Day of Wrath and Day of Judgment and you know all these songs like Heaven and Earth Burning and Judgment Day and ominous, like thunderous music. I mean, the opening credits, where you just have yeah. like a scroll going by with all these marvelous illustrations, like people walking into the mouth of the beast. This is how people fall under the spell of religion, where like the combination of astonishing imagery and music it just becomes real. It makes you, it's why cathedrals are so resplendent. It, it, you, you basically succumb to the power. 
And what they're singing, like the, the music itself is at least a very famous, like uh, the coming of death song. Like it's sang, sang in requiems and whatnot. I'm used to the words being like Dies Irae, which is Latin. I don't know what it means. I think this is just pure Danish, what they're singing. But it's clearly evoking just this sense of morbid fate that uh, this is in God's hands, that we're no longer in control of what's going to happen to these people, and death is looming ahead. Yeah, I must feel like you could pair this movie with something like like Witchfinder General, which is obviously much more of like a genre piece from the 1960s, but it feel, it's a similar time period, and it just shows how, if, if you lived in Western Europe in the 1600s, I don't know what the the right path to to, uh, to avoiding being like uh, called out w- w- what it would have been, but it seems like whether you were a scientist or just you like to have a nice roll in the hay, like just like the the accusation of witchcraft was an absolute death sentence, and I just find yeah. this whole period fascinating. Whether you're talking about like Arthur Miller's The Crucible or whatever the case might be, I mean, so many filmmakers and storytellers have been attracted to this material, but I think Day of Wrath totally holds its own with, with the best films or the best stories or the best books or plays in this subgenre, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because there there is uh, th- this trend throughout these films about this, uh, uh, not exactly rebelling against conformity, but but struggling with conformity, and yeah, that's like, the issue here. When you are not part of the, when you're not a conformist, the second that you try to step out briefly, uh, you're a witch. If you're you live state. within a group that is thinking and so, uh, along a certain line, and you step out of that line, yeah. Heaven help you. And a group thing is one of those things where obviously in the, in the age of the internet, we see a lot of different examples. I mean, every form of loathsome group thing imaginable, you can always find a tribe that totally embraces it. And you're like, Ugh, but it's like, yeah, these movies have, this movie has a lot of applicability to any era, whether you're talking about Nazi occupation of Denmark or social media in 2021, where the case would be, or just people straight up being burned alive in the 1600s. That's probably the most yeah. direct, obvious applicability since that's what it's, uh, what's, what it's tackling. But I, I think it's, it's a remarkable movie. And anybody who's ever had a taste of Dryer, if you've not seen Day of Wrath yet, put this movie on your to-do list. It's of his sound films. Oh no, of the three films that we're talking about today, because I think Vampire is probably his most accessible sound film. But of the three we're talking about today, this is probably the the easiest watch, despite That's the fact fair. that yeah, when it's, it's more accessible without a doubt. Yeah. When it first came out, people said this is too slow. I, it's shocking that people would say that now, especially after you watch his next two films, which are slower. <laughs> Um, but people like, you think this, this is, is slow. slow. Wait, wait, do you see? Wait, 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 do you get a load out of me? Yeah, holy shit! Yeah, but each film gets longer with fewer shots. I think, uh, I think, Ordet has 116 shots total over two hours and six minutes, and Gertrude has 90 shots total over an hour and 56 minutes. Yeah, like it's funny how in the 90s people used to always talk use this term so casually, like oh MTV style editing, but it's like yeah, MTV style editing was not what uh, Dreyer was all about. He no. Like, long, beautiful shots. To do a long shot is incredibly difficult because you have to yeah. find a way with the blocking and the movement of the actors to make it interesting and to fill that frame, it's way easier to break it up into a million little pieces. Like, all right, we get this two seconds here and this three seconds here, and we're going to find it in the editing room. It takes a true master of their craft to be able to stage a very long, slow shot. And in the in the documentary that I was watching about, oh, no, which, which, oh, I watch so many documentaries on these discs. That's one thing I'm going to say. If you do have a region-free player, do get the Carl Theodor Dreyer collection because it is loaded with extras. There's an interview. I believe this is being talked about with uh, – uh, Gertrude, that um, 
when they do these long takes, you can't edit it down. He he knew that he didn't have that luxury of being able to change it. If he's doing an entire reel, like in a full 11 minute shot, that's what he's going to get. Granted, you could go, uh, it, it was the 60s then. He could have done jump cuts. He could have made it very modern. Yeah, I mean, he was in the era of Godard, but he was not about to whip out that band of outsider style of editing. Exactly. So, no, he just, and he stuck with that. And he has to make the most of his time, but that's what adds to the style. That's what really makes it what it is. Yeah, there's a weird emotional tension that emerges from a long shot. I, I'm stealing this from a quote by Wes Craven because I'm, I'm, preparing to do an episode about Last House on the Left, but he knew so little about filmmaking, he didn't know how to set things up and edit things together, so his approach to every single scene was, I'm just going to do one long take, I'll do it three different ways, and then I'll, whatever I get, that's what I get, and I'll just figure it out. He says, while it made it virtually impossible to edit, because that's not how movies are shot, so what ended up happening is that the movie got this deranged supernatural power from these really long takes because you're watching all these atrocities take place and you're really just having to live in it. And I feel like for a filmmaker, if you can keep your shots long, if as long as you're filling that shot with something interesting, it mm. has a different kind of power than rapid. And I love rapid fire editing. Sam Peckinpah is one of my favorite filmmakers and he used to edit like a madman, but it, it is interesting seeing what kind of like power that's almost beyond your ability to overtly control. What can emerge from these long sustained shots? Yeah. And in drier, Dreyer is the expert at it. Like you said, he'd spend the entire day rehearsing. Then at the end of the day in the afternoon, they'd say like, all right, let's film it now. Because you know the shot's going to be perfect because they worked all day on it. It seems very laid back. It seems like a great way of doing things. Seems like it's going to be a very non-stressful set because you're not trying to get too much done in one day. You're just getting one shot done per day. And I'm pretty sure it was Ordet that uh, it took them four months to film and three days to edit. Wow. Johannes! Johannes! dive into one of the big ones this is one of those movies where anytime a big website or a big magazine or whatever does like the top 100 movies or top 250 movies like, as long as they're interested in like international global cinema but you're almost always going to see or debt pop up on the list and i think it's absolutely deserved unless you are in your coffin buried deep underground i don't know how it's possible not to have 
just like a, a thunderous emotional experience by the end of this movie. I'm going to even say that if you're in the coffin, you'll still like it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I first saw it on DVD like in the early 2000s, and I really had no idea what to expect. By the time we reached the conclusion, I hate the idea of like using even the word spoilers in the same in the same neighborhood as uh, an artist as sophisticated as Dreyer. Can we talk about Ordet without giving away the ending, or is that just a, a, an exercise in futility? I, I think I think that it's an exercise in futility. But honestly, if you're watching, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Ordet yet, just press pause, come back in two hours and six minutes from now, and and then we'll keep going. Or just take 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 it as it is and know that it's been uh, what seventy six years, not seventy six, sixty six years. Yeah, you've had your uh, chance gonna, to see it. You've had your chance. You've had sixty six <laughs> years to watch this. So we're gonna spoil the ending. All right. So lay it on us. What is Ordet? Ordet. Like besides, earlier, besides word, yeah, it's the word. It is a story about a family. Really, deep down, it's about a family and their struggles. We have this 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 father figure. We have his three sons, uh, and each of them has their own struggles. The one uh, the one son, the eldest son, is married. His wife is pregnant. Uh, the next son down is crazy. Thinks he's Jesus Christ. He he went to theology school. Learned about uh learned about oh it was a Kierkegaard had an existential existential crisis yeah, and, broke and went his insane mind. I feel like a lot broke. of parents can relate to that like, I sent my kid away to college and they came back and said they hate me and like, I think I'm a fascist it's like I thought I thought they would love me I sent him to this nice school <laughs> <laughs> no this guy just thinks he's Jesus and then the youngest son is in love with uh the Taylor's daughter and the Taylor and oh my god what's what's our what, what's our main guy's name the main father's name is morton yeah morton and morton watching him morton. and the taylor and their theological debates about religion are just uh those are worth the price of admission alone you have these two guys who are so, i mean 99% of their dna is virtually identical they're both mean as snakes they're both deeply religious they work hard they're all about family but they have a slight disagreement about religion. So, of course, that means they got to fight to the death for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and, like... and I especially love the fact that, that clearly this is a small community. Uh, Morton runs the farm and Peter the tailor runs the tailor. So clearly they have to work together. Absolutely. Clearly, if they want clothes, he has to go to the tailor. And if the tailor wants food, he has to work. And I, there's something about that that I absolutely love, just this small town like uh, rivalry, because they have a disagreement in religion. And the tailor clearly doesn't get along with the church because he runs his own sermons in his tailor shop. What it reminds me a little bit, uh, where I used to go uh, quail hunting down in South Carolina, we would drive through a lot of small towns to get to the area. And a lot of these small towns are just overflowing with parishes. And apparently mm -hmm. if you live in some of these small towns, like Monk's Corner, if you've got your own parish, it's actually like a big symbol of like status and prestige. And it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. like your parish might only be, or your congregation might only be like four or five people, but you've got your own church and it's cheap land and it's a cheap building. So it's like, why not put up your own goddamn church and so on and so forth. And I just love how, yeah, when, when the, the business is done, he shuts things down and, all, and like his congregation shows up and they, they pray and sing for hours and, seems like the key difference between these two characters is one almost looks forward to death because they're looking forward to like the rapture and the other thinks that like God is all about love and life and experiencing life to the full but they're both deeply religious they just have different ideas about how you achieve salvation yes and I, I think it's very interesting because yeah Morton he even sent uh, Johannes to 
uh, theology school, thinking that he would be the new spark in religion. He would bring love and 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 liked to to Christianity again, and he came back insane. Yeah, he came back, and you open up, and I, I think this is a departure from the source material, but you open up with Johannes just on the sand dunes. His congregation is like seagulls and crabs and that sort of thing. He's just preaching to the sand dunes, and his brothers and his father wake him, like, oh, like Johannes is missing again. We better go find him. It's like a morning ritual. they got to go out and look, hunt him down and, and bring him back before he hurts himself. Yeah. And and just Johannes being crazy like that, just being that into his own delusion, it just it clearly can be hurtful in times of struggle and strife, especially when we do get to later on in the film where where uh, oh my god, going Inger. down the list here, or Inger, Inger, yeah. sorry, I, I literally have on my iPad the cast because I'm not good with these Danish names uh, set in I guess 1906 or 1908 when the play was written. That's that's one of the things like clearly Day of Wrath, you know, is set in like the 15th century, the 16th century with both Gertrude and Ordet. It's hard to tell necessarily exactly when it takes place because yeah, like, I don't is know this enough. Five hundred years ago, or is this like last week? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know enough about Denmark to know like what life was like in the '60s to be like, oh, this is this is back in the day. Oh no, this is modern. Oh, well, okay. it almost feels if you say we were to say this takes place in 1955, but these people just enjoy a nice, simple life because they're farmers and tailors, and they just they like their religion and their craft, and, and they've just chosen to still use like horse-drawn carriages. Like you would accept that, or if you were to exactly. tell me this takes place in the 1700s, I would. Accept that as well uh, the only the only clue that you know that it takes place in the 20th century is the fact that there is a phone true and the doctor seems to know wherever he speaks he's not completely superstitious and he's not yeah. attaching leeches to their face because yes. they're having like a miscarriage and things like that yeah that, that's that's the only clue so you know it takes place some point in the 20th century but how recent who knows yeah but getting back to what you're saying about johannes and how devout he is when he's ranting about his obsessions even to his father, like his father, his father is so overwhelmed with grief over what's happening to Inger because the the child she's trying to give birth to it's not lying right and it's it's going it's going it's as bad as it gets, and Johannes just keeps rambling and rambling and his father's like Johannes, I can't take this please just go to bed please just stop it because it's just it's just additional emotional torment that uh, that the father has to suffer while his daughter in law is going through the worst delivery that you could possibly imagine. And and you also have to wonder: Is this guy really crazy? Because he's saying, "I see death walking through. Death is left. He death makes is me believe it. when I, that, that scene yeah. where he's like, "Oh, I, I can see like death walking through the the wall. I can I can hear him departing." And everybody's like, "Oh no, that's just a car leaving. Like, it's just like you're getting distracted by something that's mundane and very earthly." But as you're watching it, you fall under the spell of Johannes. It, it's that's once again, Ordet and Dave Rath both have this incredible power to really make you a believer. I'm I'm gonna say the same with Passion of Joan of Arc. You truly believe that she's not crazy. You believe that she was touched by God. That yeah. that, that she was sent on a mission. Uh, and it doesn't really matter what your personal belief structure is going into the movie. You will leave believing it 100%. And same with Ordet. And I think that's th- those are my two favorite of his films. And Ordet is my favorite of the three we're talking about today because of how much you like the catharsis you get from this film. I have a cat trying to break into my room right now. I like now. it. Let it's it positive. in. Let it in. There we go. Come here. There we yeah, go. I can't remember which episode it was. It was a couple of years ago where uh, the cat was vomiting up a book, and I was like, you know what? That's my favorite thing that's ever happened on an episode of Wrong Reel. And it's the same cat. Nice. <laughs> so who knows what's going to happen now? How, how many books has the cat consumed in the interim? Uh, zero. Zero. They're, the, they're... the books, uh, you, you can see the books are all on a shelf now. 
the audience is not seeing this uh, this video, but uh, without books on the floor, it becomes much more difficult. But she is trying to eat the USB cord connecting my microphone nice. to my computer. So if my audio cuts out instantly, you'll know why. <laughs> we suddenly hear the, the shriek of agony and pain of a, of a beautiful little creature. We, we, we know what has happened. Well, let's talk about this scene, this lengthy scene where Inger is struggling because... Dreyer knows how to do something. He does a similar thing in Day of Wrath during the storm, but for like 30 minutes, you're just hearing anger off screen moaning. And it's not like she's like, oh, like getting all melodramatic. It's just, you can just hear her. It's almost like she's trying not to moan as loud as she would like to, given the pain that she's in. And every time it's just like little, little knives stabbing into your heart. And it just goes on and on and on, forcing you to endure what your, your mind is filling in the gaps of what's happening off screen, especially yeah. when they start bringing in very large scissors and a pail with which to break the child down into four pieces in order to try and at least save the mother since they know it's the, the yeah, child it's, at this point. It's, it's, a, a it's lost dark. Cause. It's dark. And fun fact about the sounds of her in childbirth, that's the actual sounds of the actress in childbirth. She was pregnant while they were filming. Whoa. And Dreyer asked like, hey, you're about to give birth. Can we record the sound? And she said, sure. Holy cow. So uh, the uh, the end scene of the movie without I won't spoil it yet because we're not there yet, but the, the end scene of the movie was filmed after she had given birth, but everything else was filmed before she had given birth. Fascinating. Yes. So you're actually hearing the real sounds of someone in childbirth. And I think that adds – and that's another thing. Dreyer's all about realism. He, he's going to try to make things as real as possible because that's how you're going to get the best thing on screen. And, and it's it's his perfectionism that I think also uh, – hurt his career in a little bit. I think that if he was a little bit less of a perfectionist, he probably would have gotten more films made. He probably wouldn't have disowned a film and we would have been able to all enjoy it. But I think his perfectionism is also what leads to these things being so great. And do, do we talk yet about just the, the set design in Ordet and how he had them completely like deck it out? Just like, yeah, make it, make it look like a, a, a farmhouse. Yeah. Then uh, he start removing your... little details and make it, and he would just strip it down. Like, so they would like, they would decorate the set. But then he's like, oh, let's take away these, let's take away these, let's take away these. And he would just boil it down to the barest essentials. Nothing is in the frame unless it absolutely needs to be there. And this is, uh, in, in the truest sense, this is a minimal, minimalist film. As, as I already said, there's just over 100 shots in the movie. Half of them are at the beginning and at the end. And the rest are just long seven-minute takes of just people doing things. And it's completely engaging, completely enrapturing as you just get sucked into it. And... Uh, and the the cinematographer working on it, because the worst thing you can have when you're making a movie is just a bare white wall. He's just sh shining lights and shadows that are not exactly the most natural, but just that creates this dimension, creates the space. And it just looks so it, it, it's austere. Yeah, they he, they fill the frame. But even though they're filling the frame kind of with nothing, same thing happened in Passion of Joan of Arc. Just, most of it's just a shitload of close ups. But you never will complain about a lack of set. I think we even talked about this on an episode two years ago, how they yeah. spent a lot of money on building really nice sets, which Dreyer then proceeded not to shoot. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's almost the same, but now in the wide shot, just like, oh, you built a great set. Get rid of this. Get rid of that. Yeah. I just want it to be the only things these people would use in their daily life and nothing else. Yeah, well, going, getting back to the realism, there's a one moment which is almost too much realism when the doctor whips out these nasty scissors and you see him struggling with them with like making an effort. You're like, oh, Ooh. he's cutting a, a nine-month baby. 
into pieces right now and it's like traumatic yeah and, and like you said you don't see it you just hear later hold on i'm gonna get the names right here we hear Mikkel. uh is it the father or who is it that asks like how's the child doing it's like he's in four pieces in a bucket yeah it's like ooh. yeah no, it's, 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 it's as bad as it gets. It's, it's completely, yeah. utterly bleak. And there's no escaping from it. If you're watching, as you're watching the movie, I mean, I, I've never seen this in the theater. I saw it on DVD and I saw it on Criterion Channel. Mm-hmm. But if you have did the discipline of just not having distractions and you just have to live in this moment for like minute after agonizing minute and you really just have to endure it. And meanwhile, you have this little subplot where the, the daughter of Inger, who totally believes in Johannes, She's like totally unconcerned that her mother's like in a fight to the death because she just believes that at a certain point, Johannes is going to step in and with imbued with the power of God, manage to make everything right. In that context, it's almost infuriating that people, like if you're at a hospital and a loved one is suffering and somebody who has blind faith keeps trying to say like empty platitudes to make you feel good, even if you know they have the best of intentions, if you're a non-believer, it can make you kind of want to kill the person. Like just take, yeah. take your blind it, faith it's, elsewhere. It, seem, it seems cruel. Yeah. It seems absolutely cruel. But there's one thing Johannes does in that scene. And this is one of my favorite shots in the movie because they, they literally do a complete semicircle around them this this very stark very austere film where everything is just these w- wide shots with maybe some some uh, pans some some dolly back and forth now suddenly we have this this very nice scene with johannes and and the the his niece uh as the camera just goes around them slowly as they talk about like oh isn't it nice to have a mother that's in heaven they always look over you it's like no she always is with me here you can save her right yes and it's interesting how they lit it i I heard an interview with the cinematographer he put full light on on the girl whereas he only put half light on johannes because he's saying like he's only half there it's it's saying that there's still some of johannes there but He's not fully there, so he's not going to be fully lit. And I think that that's also a very interesting way of looking at it. That this guy is insane, but he's not fully insane. Yeah. He knows that he's Johannes, but he also thinks he's Jesus. It's not like he's fully in the loony bin. He's there's there's a piece of him that's still a little bit sane. There's some glimpses well, of lucidity in there. Especially when his weird, eerie predictions turn out to be the case. Like you think that the mother's been saved. The doctor comes out. He's hanging out with the uh, the father in law and the minister, and they're they're drinking coffee and they're all basically swapping high fives. Job well done. We lost one child, but thank God, like Inger was saved. Then the moment the doctor leaves, the husband comes, steps out, and's like, "All right, she just drifted away." Like, whoa! I mean, did Johannes actually see the Grim Reaper floating into the room and carrying her away? Like, what the hell? Because the movie makes you it gives you this fake like pump fake happy ending where you think everything's going to be fine. And then just suddenly abruptly anger's gone and it just, yeah. uh, it wrecks you. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that's what sets up the wonderful true ending of the movie. And without spoiling it yet, I, I think what really makes this work is the sense that it, it does not feel saccharine. It does not feel schmaltzy. You truly believe that maybe the world that these people live in is kind of dark. It's kind of depressing and it's very realistic. And when you have the miracle that happens at the end of the film happen, it's not like you're expecting it. Even though throughout the movie, people well, are talking about miracle, miracles. But you also have some smaller miracles, like the idea of the tailor and the farmer starting to get along. Like That's like, like the biggest miracle. Like, yeah. well, they're going to be friends. All the miracles happen all at the end, all with all surrounding this one event, because the, the, the tailor, who 
when when he when uh, Morton gets the call that his his daughter in law is going through a rough labor, like the the tailor's just like, oh, I hope she died so that you can learn the truth about yeah, religion. You're gonna yeah. learn your lesson that you're following the wrong faith, and this is God's way of punishing you. And Morton's like, it almost sounds as if you're hoping that she's gonna die. I mean, it is some really bleak, ruthless stuff. And this, but this yeah. is ongoing debate throughout the whole movie. Is, do miracles exist? And if they ever did, then why don't they exist now? And yeah. you hear a couple of different points of view. And I can't remember who says it. One person says that basically if God were to allow a miracle now, that it would fundamentally undermine the laws of nature. Therefore, he doesn't. And that the, the mm-hmm. miracles that you see in the Bible were basically like a like a brief moment in time, exceptions to teach a, a lesson. But otherwise, miracles are almost like, like unhealthy and unnatural. And so you keep wondering, well, do miracles exist or do they not? And when you see Johannes attempts his first miracle by coming into Inger's dead body, he collapses under the emotional strain. And you're like, all right, well, he's just, clearly he's just a crazy person. He has a, he has a mental break and then flees out a window and disappears. Mm-hmm. And yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just so good. And yeah, you, you, you truly, it, there, there's so much talk about miracles. There's so much talk about them that, by the end, you're so beaten down, you don't believe that anything's possible anymore. Yeah. And then Johannes comes back. He's he's lost his crazy person coat. That's how you know that he's sane again, because because he's dressed just in his his fisherman sweater. And you just see all these people. And, and one thing I think is great before we get to that is uh, the, the the eldest son, Mikkel. Um, I, I love how there's just a moment where he finally collapses over the coffin and starts crying, and the dad's just like, ah, oh, finally, he's crying. Like, there's the emotions that he's been holding back this whole time. And everyone's just been kind of on that same emotional level. Like, even through, like, the, the worst tragedy, everyone's trying to keep this brave face and keeping this, like, stiff upper lip uh, attitude towards it, which I think is just very Scandinavian in itself. And also, but I love how, like, Mikkel is totally unimpressed by people's soothing words and prayers. Like, someone says something about how, like, and, like there's so much beauty, like, uh, uh, how much beauty there is in pain. He's like, yeah, but I'd rather just have anger. Like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, the fact that people are trying to make him feel better is only making him feel worse. Yeah, yeah. And then when you finally have Johannes show up and the, the daughter goes over, and it's like, are you going to perform the miracle? Oh, but even before he, that, though, you, you had this very small miracle that Anne is going to be allowed to marry yes. the youngest brother and essentially take Inger's place in the household. So the household will not be empty of like a maternal presence and that there will be a mo- like something resembling a mother for the little girls who have now lost their mother. Yes. And you're like, wow, like. Peter and Morton have they've shaken hands and making amends and you know, maybe maybe that's the happy ending and then you get then you get the real happy ending. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, for most movies, that would probably be enough. Like, oh, in yeah. this tragedy, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. There, there is some some goodness still in the world. And granted, they still lost the child. That's still a tragedy. But Johannes, as a sane person through faith, Inger comes back to life. Yeah, and the, it's because the child believes. He says, look. The miracle is not possible because you all have lukewarm faith. You're you're non-believers. But this little girl steps up. She's like, hurry up and do it. She believes Johannes can do it. And it's her yeah. complete, innocent, unbridled, untainted, like non-political, just pure spiritual belief in what she thinks Johannes can do. He's like, all right, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And that's when he says, give me the word and starts to pray. And you, when, she, when Inger starts to open her eyes, you quite literally believe you're watching the dead rising from the grave. Yeah. When she comes back, she's been dead for a while at that point, and you yeah. have come to come to terms with it. Emotionally, you've already reached a point of acceptance, and so that's what makes the uh, return. Maybe 
if she was brought back minutes after dying, that would kind of spoil the scene. But you really have to digest it for like 20 or 30 minutes, and then you have the miracle. So supposedly they filmed it two ways. One, that it was a true miracle that she was dead and brought back to life. And another, that she just appeared to be dead and they were not able to, to, to recognize it, that she was just, you know, in a state of unconsciousness, which does not work at all. Doesn't even make sense in my yeah. opinion. Well, you got too many witnesses there. I mean, one thing it was just the family and they're misreading the signs or she's in a deep coma. But at this point, I don't even know if they embalmed people back then, but she's, yeah. she's been examined by physicians and doctors and she's in the coffin. They're quite literally about to put on the lid so they can yeah. put her in the ground. So, Something yeah. tells me if she was embalmed, nothing Johannes could do would bring her back. Yeah, That'd yeah, yeah. Miracle. It's like, why do I taste sawdust? Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. Like where, how come all my internal organs have been removed? Like, (laughs) no, that would be dark. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you'd, you'd last too long after a Johannes miracle there, but no, like, like we've been saying like this, this is, it's truly awe inspiring. It's truly a miracle. You truly believe that you have witnessed, uh, even the the living word finds his faith and he's the ultimate cynic while he is a good person. And everybody keeps saying that he's not religious, but he's a good person. He's a great father. He's a great husband, a great worker, but he finds his faith and says that their child is now alive with God. And like what, I guess what makes it all the more powerful is that we see how the beginning of the movie, even though they've been married for eight years, he still kind of chases her around the kitchen like they're teenagers and he's just falling in love with her. Like he still like desires her and still loves her and still adores her. And that's some really sweet, tender stuff. You can say like, he still, uh, you know, still still enjoys getting it on with her even after she's had a, a couple of kids, and that you know, they are they, they are um, you know they're a real couple. Yeah, and and even when they're talking about uh, Anne and the youngest, or not is it? Oh my God, I'm getting all these names confused right now. Yeah, Anne, the 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 <laughs> the the, uh, the Taylor's daughter, like. He, when when Morton talks to the tailor, it's just like, this isn't our time where it's just like, yeah, you're just going to marry this person because it's politically convenient or it's like you need someone in the house. Like these these kids actually love each other. Don't don't try to stop them from loving each other. So this younger generation truly believes in real love. And it's it's not like in Day of Wrath where uh, the, the bishop is just like, yeah, I just want a pretty lady to be my, my maid. And something I, I think is very cute uh, when... Uh, Morton is talking to Peter the tailor. The two kids are like in the other room or in the basement or something. And the, uh, the, the tailor's wife is reading him a Bible story and says, would you like to see the picture? And shows it to Anne. And uh, <laughs> what's, what's the, uh, what's the youngest kid's name? The uh, youngest? Anders. Yeah. Anders. Anders comes around to see it. She's like, no, 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 you can see it from your seat. Yeah. yeah it's absolutely. just it's like a pure little innocent, just like, uh, like like middle schoolers like over like another it's like no 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 you sit there on that side of the table I'll show you in your time it's just such also like a, when like they're bringing in coffee to the fathers as they're negotiating and debating they make the daughter do it so that not even for five seconds could the two like to the two like you know lovebirds be left in the same room alone because who knows what might happen between the two of them yeah it's 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 the modern day it's it's the uh, the Bordet equivalent of just like. Your door needs to stay open. <laughs> Excellent. It's the, the one foot rule. When I was in boarding school, I mean, it was an all guy boarding school, and periodically, every like once, once every millennium, they would allow girls to come on campus for a dance, and they even, in their infinite generosity, would allow us to have uh, some girls come by. But you had to leave the door open, and you had to have one foot on the floor <laughs> at all times. <laughs> I mean, it was totally, completely absurd. 
Oh my god. Well, this movie obviously found a massive audience and did very well and it racked up all kinds of awards. I think did it get did it win uh Berlin or what what what, what awards did it pick I up? I think it won the Golden Lion. Nice. And I think it won the Golden Globe for best foreign film. Excellent. I guess I mean Golden Globes. It's like a, Golden. Globes, so I fall in and out of love with the Golden Globes, and I never quite know. Is this like a, a weird, like is this an actual award ceremony? It's just an excuse to everybody get get drunk, which is totally valid. But it's like, yeah, my opinion of awards always kind of ebbs and flows depending upon how much I, I like the movies in question. But I'm just thrilled on Dreyer's behalf that the movie found an audience, it got some accolades, and that people recognize, oh, this great master from the silent era is still alive and kicking and still capable of making great work. But a, a, a weird thing that I read, not weird, like a kind of tragic thing that I read right before we started recording, is that on two occasions in the movie, Morton and Anders drive to and from their meeting with Peter the tailor, and they pass this rough cross. Am I silent again? Jesus. No, no, no. I, 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 this is something I made a note of and forgot to bring up. Oh, gotcha. You started you know, motioning no, was, without speaking. I, I, I was like, oh, fuck, I've gone silent again. But they passed this cross where the body of Kaj Munk, the, uh, the writer, he had been assassinated in 1944 during the Nazi occupation of Denmark for openly preaching against collaboration with the Nazi regime. So it almost feels like um, it's a little echo from Day of Wrath making its way into Ordet. Now, there's one thing that I, I wanted to, to talk about because IMDb cannot confirm this, but there was a an interview that I was reading, and I can see it, is Johannes – oh, no, this I, – I think I might be wrong here. I don't know. But uh, the actor that played uh, Martin, the, uh, the, the, the son from Day of Wrath – Looks just like Johannes, yeah. I think they might be the same person. I, I thought they were too, but I couldn't confirm that either. But cause... Because in the interviews they say, I worked on two Dreyer films, and most of the people in his films have like very sparse IMDb profiles, which doesn't surprise me too much. Denmark from the, the 50s and 40s, maybe their agent is not keeping their IMDb up to snuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also just had like weirdos, like the star of Vampire was just like some wealthy eccentric who wanted to star in a movie, so he just financed it himself yeah. <laughs> and so on and so forth. Yeah, and he and Dreyer was really good at just being like, if I need an old person, I'm going to find an old person. And just like the shots of like everyone in the Taylor's uh, congregation, those are just like people from the street, and they all have interesting faces, and they're all filmed in such an interesting way. He's and he he's he seems like the type that could probably get a good performance out of a a non professional. Yeah, absolutely. And, if anything, he might even prefer them depending upon what he needs out of them. Yeah, because th- again, like like I said, these are not melodrama performances. These are very subdued, very very uh, very Spartan, very uh, very laid back. Not so much laid back. In the same way very... he would strip props out of a scene, he probably exactly. would start stripping away the most obvious elements of your acting craft, like. All right, do that, but with like 10 times less emotion, like strip away all the craft and just read me the line. Thank you for saying it in a more eloquent way than I was capable of doing. <laughs> and something that I find very interesting, I can't remember, or at least I didn't notice it as much in Day of Wrath. I really notice it in Gertrude. I think it first starts to pop up here in Ordet is complete conversations between two people in which they make no eye contact. Yeah, big time in Gertrude, where she's always looking off into the distance as she speaks. You know, whether she's talking to, or she has like three main or three and a half kind of main lovers in that story, but when she's about to drop some, some knowledge bombs on her, speak some harsh truths, she stares off into the distance, almost like in a yeah. trance. It's definitely a, a style that you see taken by like Aki Kurismaki, where in his movies, again, very subdued performances where you're just going to have two people sitting on a couch looking away from each other, having a full-blown conversation. Yeah, I 
Might as well switch into Gertrude unless you have any yeah. final big takeaways on Ordet. But for a director who's so cinematic and so visual, that approach to acting does feel like it's straight out of the theater. Yeah. Well, all three of these movies are based on plays. Yeah. And I have to wonder if he felt as though he needed to film it in a certain way to, to kind of bring that across. Because he saw uh, – all uh, or. I think he saw the premiere of Gertrude or was it the premiere of Ordet when it first came out? And he's been working on treatments of these things ever since. Uh, so yeah, I think that's what it was. Or maybe it, it was the premiere of one of those two. And he had seen all of these things early in his life and had been always planning like, Oh, I'm going to make a film on this. And I think for Ordet, he even got paid in, in uh, retrospect for his previous work on the screenplay he had been doing for years and years and years which which allowed him some financial independence with making it and they also gave him the ownership of a like a small art house theater which allowed him to finance or debt as well because he he never was a wealthy man he never really had the money to do what he wanted to do and so that's why another reason why there's like 10 year gaps between all three films that we're talking about today well Gertrude is a movie that's been on my radar for quite literally decades and I first heard about it in the book this is Orson Welles where in the interview between Bogdanovich and Orson Welles Welles was talking about how much of a fan of Gertrude he was, not because he'd seen it or liked it. He loved it sight unseen because of the completely violent reaction against it by a lot of film critics, a lot of film lovers, a lot of filmmakers. But just for whatever reason, in 1964, a lot of people, even though some immediately ranked it as one of their favorite films of the year, one of their favorite movies, period, people lost their fucking minds when they saw Gertrude. And so Wells, because he'd spent a decent amount of his career being laughed out of the room and booed out of the room, he decided, well, I'm going to take Dreyer's side on this. So, all right, so maybe I'll see Gertrude at some point. And then many years later, I was reading the same film historian I was quoting earlier, David Thompson, his entry on Dreyer. He ranked Gertrude as uh, Dreyer's best film. I was like, huh, fuck. Well, I guess I need to see this. However, I'd never seen it prior to uh, a couple days ago, but I'm kind of in a weird way glad that it took me until age 44 to see it because I feel like this is a movie being made by an aging filmmaker and it also deals with a lot of themes and concerns of aging people. And I don't know if I were 20, if I would have responded remotely in the same way, but as is, I had a pretty profound emotional reaction to this movie. I just, I was absolutely floored by it. And I'm going to be upfront here. I think this is a good movie, but I don't think I fully come around to it yet. I, I do think. Maybe you're, I, you're, I you're still think... young at heart. You're not mean and old like me. Exactly. <laughs> once, once I'm as, as ancient as you are, then maybe I'll, I'll have a, and here's the thing. You have too I much, see too much gr- happiness and fulfillment in your, in your love life. I, I see the groundwork for, for, for really loving this. I think it has all of the recipes for things that I'll love, but I don't think I'm quite there yet. I do think that this is a movie that, that 
maybe I'm just not mature enough yet to fully embrace. And that's not to say I don't like it. I do like it, but this is probably my least favorite of the three movies. And I do know that a lot of people hold this in very high regard. And the first time or I saw outright it... outright contempt. You were, I mean, so... Yeah. And the first time I saw it, I was just kind of okay on it. And this is the second time I've seen it. I liked it more. I do think that it's going to continue to grow each time I see it. And I think it does have to do a lot with that just uh, experience. I think it has to do a lot with just age. Because like you said, this is the last film that this man made. He had to, let's see exactly how old he was when he made this. Because he was born in 1889 and this is 1964. So he is, what, 75 years old when he makes this? Yeah. Yeah. That's not not a spring chicken. Uh, I mean you're going to make a movie in a different way. And I think it's very like common with older filmmakers. They're just going to make it the way they need to. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of other like, but some last... directors in their seventies make movies like a young person. Like if you were to, if you didn't know who George Miller was and you saw Mad Max Fury Road, like, Oh, some like 28 year old metalhead made that yeah. movie. Like, Oh, 70. Yeah. Okay. Well, fuck shit. But Gertrude, in the, for me, in a good way, you feel the age of the storyteller because it's a movie very much concerned with, a beautiful but aging woman at a crossroads in her life. Will she remain the wife of a cabinet minister? Will she remain the lover of a very young, kind of wild and crazy composer? Will she go back to this poet who has made a career basically about writing about their relationship, who has never gotten over their uh, their romance and, and their great split? Or will she just settle into middle age and just enjoy the companionship of some close friends that she can have intellectual conversations with? And you really see her full exploring the pros and cons of all of them. And I just found that absolutely riveting because, yeah, if you're in your 40s but you're still sexually active, like what do you want out of your relationship? If you're not pursuing family, you're not pursuing kids, what is the point of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Like what are you trying to extract from it? Or is it just about having someone to pass the time of day with? And she really explores all the ups and downs and different um, concerns of all those different scenarios. And luckily she's got all these guys who are just, you know, coming after her in a big way. The musician loves the fact that she can sing and the, the politician's just enthralled with her and the poet has, she still, he still looks at her as like a beautiful young woman. They're all, oh, he's, he, the poet is so mopey the entire movie. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a mopeyer human being. And, it's it's, just... and he, but he finally finds out why she left him. He wrote one line, which for me, I think was what sealed the deal and why I was so enthralled by this movie. She was going through some of his notes and he'd written this line, a woman's love and a man's work are mortal enemies. And she, she <laughs> saw that she, she left him. And I think that's kind of how her, her whole, uh, really what 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 drives her is the fact that she wants to be loved on her terms yeah and she can't find a man that will do that uh her current husband is more concerned with his with 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 his uh work with with his with status yeah. yeah with political ambitions that was the same issue that she had with 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 the mopey poet uh this this uh th- this uh composer even though that they make beautiful music together and that's one of my favorite things about it and is sweet just sweet love I, I love the piece of music that they perform together. It's just so dark. It's so brooding. It's so wonderful. I, I, I had to rewind and listen to it again this on this past uh, watch because I loved it so much. Um, but she, she she's very stubborn almost in a way, but stubborn in a way that anyone should be. Like, I deserve to be treated in a certain way. I deserve to, to have the the love that I want in my life. And if I can't get it, no one will get my love in return. Yeah. And to be fair, she is a catch. I mean, she's an astonishingly beautiful woman. She's a great singer. She's got certain, it's not like she's one person who's, 
who thinks they deserve something that's wildly, completely unrealistic and out of their reach, she can kind of do whatever the hell she wants. And you get the sense that she has a fair amount of financial independence as well. Yeah. So she's got very rigorous standards of what she yeah. wants out of her life. And even at the beginning, because this movie, it just starts. Like when I had seen it before and I watched, I was like, wait, did I accidentally skip a chapter? Because you're just right in the middle of a conversation in the, like a long 10 minute take of two people sitting on a couch where one man saying, I want to be a minister and the other one saying, "I'm maybe I want a divorce. Yeah, she's pulling a Greta Garbo. <laughs> I want to be alone. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and it's all of these films. Oh no, I'm going to say this film and Dave Rath both have a very feminist undertones. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think all of us, I mean, from Passion of Joan of Arc up through Gertrude. Oh, like, I'm going to start back I'm, at Master yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to say I'm like some, you know, I mean, there's like different, it depends upon how old you are, like what kind of feminist you might, people might describe themselves as, but I imagine no matter what kind of feminist someone might be, they're going to find something to respond to in all of Dreyer's work, like yes. in ways that might even surprise them. Yeah. Whether it's, I'm going to be an independent woman and I'll be burned at the stake for that. Or in this case, I'm going to be an independent woman, uh, even if that means being alone. And and just kind of seeing the effect that she's had on these men and <laughs> how you can just reduce a man to just a groveling. Even though he's getting like an award, <laughs> I, I just cannot shake the image of him just with his shoulders slumped. And like Gabrielle, the biggest yeah. Round. yeah. Well, the thing is, he's never loved another. However, his work and fame have never been greater. And so the burden of his love for, in a lot of ways, informed his career. If you're going to write about love as a poet, well, then you need to know something about like unrequited love or lost love or whatever the case might be. She has been his muse, whether she's been in his life or not. And so here's another great line where he wrote, um, I believe in the pleasures of the flesh and the irreparable loneliness of the soul. And so once again, it was all these lines where I was just like really responding. I was like, wow, like <laughs> you're really speaking my language. <laughs> uh, I, I, I really wish that I could come around to this movie more for the podcast. I know that in 10 years, when 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 we have to revisit this, uh, we'll, we'll find that lost uh, two two uh, people movie, and we'll do another podcast. We're like, oh, and I like Gertrude more now, because I like I, I see the passion that someone like you has about this movie, and I'm just like, why am I not getting it fully there? Why am I just liking this movie from a technical perspective? I'm liking it from what it's saying, but I'm not getting the passion behind it. And I think for me, that that's a big thing I need between liking a movie and loving a movie. If I don't yeah. have the passion internally. Also, the passion is an involuntary emotion. Exactly. You can't talk yourself into it. It's like, I love it when somebody like doesn't like something. Oh, you need to convince me. It's like, no human being has ever convinced any other human being to like something. Maybe I can help you understand why I'm passionate, but mm-hmm. you can never force somebody to love something. If anything, you're going to accomplish the exact polar opposite. And so like the other day on Twitter, I posted a review of the latest episode of WandaVision. Someone said, you need to convince me that this is not like a complete waste of time and just a bunch of filler. I was like, I said, it's not my job to convince you of anything. If you don't like it, more power to you, like to each their own. He was like, oh, yeah. well, uh, uh, like it just, it never even occurred to him that I might not be remotely concerned with trying to convince someone of anything. Mm-hmm. Well, let's dig into some more of the uh, the details. Like one of the, I guess one of the big kind of emotional turning points of this is when she learns that Erland, her composer boyfriend, he was out at this party the previous night, and the poet makes many vague references about like he's obviously hungover, and he keeps saying, "Oh, I was in mixed company last night. I was in mixed." <laughs> it's like, what do you mean by mixed company? It's like you were out misbehaving and doing something you shouldn't but this is like your your euphemism for <laughs> talking but as it turns out he ended up at a whorehouse was getting wasted and 
at this courtesan's home was also Erland, and he was boasting and bragging about his latest conquest, which of course is the lover of the poet. And that's really what, what makes Gertrude realize that neither the, neither the young composer nor the poet nor any of these men are really going to be for her. And she has this like epiphany, this great realization where she says, her heart had grown old when she realized how great men look down on love and despise it and almost look at it as, a, as an obstacle. And once again, these are harsh, brutal truths. Like everyone wants to believe in this idea of eternal love and finding a mate with whom you can grow old together and, you know, have like wine in the afternoon in the backyard, blah, blah, blah. But I just, I find the brutal honesty of the film to be incredibly compelling and seductive. Oh yes, and what's very interesting is even though that she knows that this guy's not, this guy's kind of a scallywag, a, a ne'er do well. She still says, "I'm running away. I want you to run away with me." And he's like, "Oh, I kind of have plans." It's like clearly, even though she knows that this guy does not feel the same way about her that she feels about him, she still tries. She still tries after she's uh, told the the the, uh, the magistrate, like, "Oh, you have one last night with me that I'm running away." But he's probably and, right. Like, he basically tells her, "Look, if you were to essentially bankroll me and take care of us, you would grow to despise me. You would have contempt for me." And he's mm-hmm. probably right. And I also find it interesting, like when the magistrates, like, "Oh, what will you do?" Is like, "I'm a singer. I'm an independent woman. I can do whatever I want." When she eventually leaves to just take on her own studies. And I also find, like, yeah, take her on her own studies. And she's with this guy that actually seems kind of perfect for her, but he doesn't see her in a, in a sexual way at all. Yeah, he likes the fact that he can show her his new books and they can discuss them and things like that. Like, they are just, they're genuine friends. And, like, they yeah. flash forward decades later, and the one man who's still in her life is this guy. He comes to see her and show her his new book. And that's when you realize her emotional and, I guess, social needs have changed and evolved. And maybe that's really what getting old with someone is all about. It's just finding pals with whom you can share your time. See, see, I take the ending more depressing, more sad. I think that she wanted that and was sad that she never got it. Gotcha. But she wasn't going to try to convince this guy to do something that he didn't feel. He kind of wanted her to, or she kind of like wanted He's to, the one who got away. Kind of, yeah. He is the one that got away, but was never gone. He was always there, but never saw her the way that she wanted to be seen either. So what she wants is the companionship of someone like an Axel with the the love of someone like a Gabriel. Uh, what she really needs is just to hang on to all four of them at once. She needs there we go. the husband who's successful, successful politician who can provide for her needs. She needs the uh, the physicality of the young composer who can also satisfy her artistic cravings. She needs mm-hmm. the the poet to feed her soul. I think you know we actually talked about this <laughs> with um, what is the late sixties Bird movie that we talked about with Becky that he did for TV uh, the right. Yeah. And when they're describing the actress and like what she needs is like one guy to look after her, like her sexual needs while with like another guy to look after her, like her wounded psyche. She's one of those people. She needs a couple different men to satisfy different aspects of her personality. Yeah. And she never gets all four at the same time. Yeah. She gets all four at different points in her life. And the, she makes a great analogy at one point when she says, I had a dream that I was naked running through the streets being tar- t- torn apart by dogs. I love that image, yeah. And then she yeah. sees it in a it painting, the painting yeah. <laughs> later on in the movie. It's, 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 it's almost comical. It's like, oh, my dream. Once again, that's one of the things that I, that I really hung on to. Well, let's talk a little bit about the people who like this and people who don't. Like in Esquire magazine, a writer by the name of Dwight McDonald wrote, Gertrude is a further reach beyond mannerisms into cinematic poverty and straightforward tedium. He just sets up his camera and photographs people talking to each other. And I guess, like, you know, that last sentence is not inaccurate, but it's just like, how do you read it? Or what do you, how do you respond to those, to those scenes? Mm-hmm. 
But um, in defense of Gertrude, Dreyer had this comment to say, and I think it was a very, very moving passage that he wrote. And I promised to not read any more quotes earlier, so obviously you can call me a liar, but I'm reading one more quote. He wrote, What interests me, and this comes before technique, is reproducing the feelings of the characters in my films. The important thing is not only to catch hold of the words they say, but also the thoughts behind the words. What I seek in my films, what I want to obtain, is a penetration to my actors' profound thoughts by means of their most subtle expressions. For these are the expressions that lie in the depths of his soul. This is what interests me above all, not the technique of the cinema. Gertrude is a film that I made with my heart. And I think a lot of people are like, "What? where is the heart? The movie is it's slow and it's tedious and it's boring and blah, blah, blah. But I guess this is the film he made with his heart at this time in his life. And Jean-Luc Godard loved it. Said it was one of the best films in 1964. Then also Cahiers du Cinema voted it the second best film of that year behind Band of Outsiders. And Andrew Sarris said it was the second best film of 66, only beaten by Blow Up. By Blow Up. So there were people who saw it and responded to it. And apparently when it played at Cannes, Half the audience walked out, just thought it was so boring. But the people who stayed, maybe out of sympathy, who knows, they gave him a standing ovation, and they say Dreyer was very visibly moved by the response of those people who decided to stick it out until the end. Uh, no, I, I find it always very interesting with Cannes that, that audiences are either – they have such – Violent reactions. They're either going to boo something or give it a 10-minute standing ovation. They're probably all drunk when they see these movies, so. <laughs> probably. That's, that's probably what it is. It's You, you would just expect like the, the, the intellectuals of the film circle to just be a little bit more refined in their responses. But no, it's either like booing, throwing things at the screen. Like the house that Jack built made people go berserk. Half people left. Half people stuck around. And obviously like um, oh, who's the director who did uh, – Gaspar Noé. Gaspar Noé has had – things like Gaspar Noé and Lars von Trier have had these situations many times where half the crowd has almost made up their minds in advance what they think about the latest provocation that they have filmed – and it's decided that they are going to indulge in some kind of protest. And you know, same thing with like Pulp Fiction. And I guess Khan is just so, I've never been, but it's just so intense and so overwhelming yeah. and so much, like so much glamour and spectacle and like, it's so like, it's so formal. And you have all these incredible artists and like red carpet and media that all the emotions are very heightened. And I imagine also because it's so overwhelming and such sensory, like so much stimulation, it probably shortens people's attention spans while they're there. Like, well, should I be at this screening or should I be at this party? Should I be on this yacht or should I be, you know, making love in my hotel room? Like, what should I be? What's the best way to maximize my experience? And that's probably not the best circumstances to watch Gertrude. No. <laughs> like, why? It's like, oh, they're on here? the couch again. Oh, she's looking at herself in the mirror. Oh my god, this is so boring. Yeah, no, <laughs> watching it. Yeah, watching it on my iPad on my on my couch with nice headphones at age forty four for me was the the best way to see it. If I had watched it in college, when what I really wanted was style, and I wanted like crazy style, I wanted like Eisenstein, and I wanted Wells, and I wanted these people that like gorgeous photography and crazy editing styles, like really like attention grabbing overt styles. I would not have been ready or remotely in the mood for Gertrude at that time. Yeah. No, and like, like, like I said, I like it. I don't have the same passion for it as you do. I do think that it's something that as I continue to watch it, I'll just grow fonder of, though I may never have the same passion for it that I do with something like Or Dead or Passion. Who knows? Maybe, I'm a big, maybe I'm a big faker. Maybe I made up my mind 25 years ago to like it when I saw that uh, Orson, Orson Welles liked it. Or maybe I made up my mind when David Thompson wrote such loving things about it. Like I'm not, I will not pretend as if I can't be persuaded by people I admire. Like, but I guess I'm contradicting myself because earlier I said nobody's ever convinced anybody of anything. But, you know, if somebody who I really respect says something's the shit, if I don't like it the first time around, I might give it... I'm trying to think of an example of something where I've been, like, I've reversed myself 
completely like that. My initial reaction was totally wrong. Like, all right, Louis Buñuel, Exterminating Angel. I saw it before I was into movies and I re rejected it outright. And then later on, I think you and I even tackled it on an episode of Wrong Real. We have we, not yet. We, we did we tackle the French period? Oh, yeah, no, we, we did the French 70s period. What the hell did we do? We did the French Boonwell thing, starting with uh, Diary of a Chambermaid forward. Gotcha. So, but Exterminating Angels is a movie that I came around on, but it was like after I'd already gotten into like the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and object, mm -hmm. that uh, obscure object of desire and that sort of thing. But it is hard to make people reverse themselves in a movie if they have an initial immediate dislike. Yeah, that, that, that's another thing we could tackle, though. Boonwell, we could do the trilogy of movies with Vera Deanna, Exterminating Angel, and... Uh, Simon of the Desert. Simon of the Desert. That that's a good, good trilogy. One. That's a really yeah. good trilogy. Yeah, sign me up. Done and done. Happy to do that anytime. Boonwell is uh, one of my gods. I, I put Boonwell, Dreyer, all these people in the same... If, if they were... Like like the Greek myths, when you've got Zeus and like his brothers and sisters and children and whatnot, like the whole pantheon, Dreyer and Buñuel are in the pantheon. And the pantheon's going to be different for every film fan, but I feel like Dreyer and Buñuel should be in everybody's pantheon. Well, they're in mine. And it's funny because they're very different filmmakers. Like Buñuel is all about surrealism. It's all about dreams and all this stuff. Whereas Dreyer, here's a taste of realism. The scene where, where Axel has to give uh, uh, Gertrude headache medicine from Paris, they were actually pill, actual headache pills from uh, from Paris that she had to take. I hope they didn't make her take like a bunch of them and make her liver like <laughs> go through failure. Absolutely. Well, quick question about the Pantheon. And this, I feel like sometimes this is kind of a pretentious attitude I have. There are certain filmmakers that I regard as being in the Pantheon, even if I personally don't respond emotionally to their work. And am I saying that they're in the Pantheon just because a lot of people I respect and admire believe they're in the Pantheon? Like hmm. like Michelangelo Antonioni, I've seen probably five or six of his films, and I have enormous respect, but very little emotional attachment to his work. I, I feel the same way about Antonioni. I, I think he makes good films, but I don't have the passion for them that I do for a Bergman or a Dreyer or a Boonwell or a, 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 a Stanley Kubrick, anyone like that. Yeah, Rosalini's another one where I love Voyage to Italy, which I think is an astonishing film. But when I watch his uh, neorealisms from the 40s, they kind of leave me cold in comparison to, like, say, Vittorio De Sica. And so, like, Rosalini's a filmmaker whose name constantly comes up as being in the pantheon, but I just don't necessarily, like, look forward to watching more Rosalini movies. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Uh, different tastes for different people. Some people will really appreciate these filmmakers, but I, I think what's what's big, especially with these canon filmmakers, is that it's indelible that you, you can't reject, like, you will watch uh, uh, Rome Open City, and you will say, even though I may not react as much to this, I can see the impact this had on cinema. I can see how this influenced yeah. other people. I can see how things but have gone. I just gone prefer The Bicycle Thieves instead. Just, yeah. For me, it's Same. a more powerful emotional Same experience. Here. Agreed. And even Italian neorealism, it's not my favorite movement, but I, I like the films that it has inspired more, perhaps. Yeah, but, I like yeah, what they evolved into. I like the weird shit that came in the 50s after the neorealism. I kind of run its course, and then the floodgates were opened, and Fellini just went fucking crazy. It was like, yes, exactly. that's what we've been waiting for. Bring it exactly. on. And I, kind of, and I really like Fellini's early films, which are, which are like almost this touch of neorealism, but then there's just this fantastical element involved there with like the circus or something where it's slightly heightened reality then. So I don't know if this should be like a tweet or a blog post or a podcast, but at some point we, we might need to hear for our listeners out there, 
what is the the official Dave Eves pantheon of great mm. filmmakers? You'd have. I, I think that's something you need to get a uh, a full panel on. Get the opinions of uh, the various wrong real guests. That could be an interesting little uh, little segment. Well, Dave Thompson says like he has a and his he, every couple of years he updates his biographical dictionary of film. But it's like if most people say, "Oh, what is the pantheon?" Like if you're going to pick ten movies to take with you to the afterlife, what are you going to take? Like, oh, you're going to take one Bergman. You're going to take, you know, one of Fools and one Buñuel. And it's like very obvious and very predictable and very safe. And he's like, forget all that. It's like I'm just going to take these the following ten movies. And he lists his top ten favorite movies by Howard Hawks. And I was like, nice. It's like you're coming. You're my kind of guy because I, I like Howard Hawks. It's funny because <laughs> Howard Hawks is one of my favorite filmmakers. I don't necessarily regard them as being in the pantheon. And so it's like, what's more important? The films that you love, what's your, your personal taste, or the films that you respect or think are vital to film history. And it's kind of a, a douchey thing to separate the two, but I feel like I am capable of intellectually appreciating something, even if my raw emotions respond more to something else. Agreed. Yeah, if I have to watch movies, I'm going to pick the ones that I like the best. Like if I the desert island thing, if I have to take ten movies with me, of course I'm going to choose that. If I have to do like a sight and sound thing, of course I'm going to pick yeah. movies that I respond to. If you're doing to sight and sound, you're going to look at it in a completely different light. That otherwise, if you're an audience of one for eternity, well, then you're just going to pick your favorite movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, cool. Well, any final notes on Dreyer, his career? I feel like between our two episodes, we've managed to tackle a lot. I still have a few early Dreyer films that I'm dying to see. Apparently, The Parsons Widow is an essential. What did we I, cover on our first one? I, can't remember. I know we covered Vampire, and I know we covered Passion of Joan of Arc. What, what else did we cover on that episode? It was the only other one we covered was Master of the House. So of his movies, only seven have been released on Blu-ray internationally. The only other one is Michael, which is a very interesting movie. It's, uh, it's made in the 20s, and it's about a gay relationship. Interesting. It was his first movie. It's called like The President or something like that, like 1919 yeah, or President, Parsons Widow. I've never seen anything earlier than Michael. That's the earliest Dreyer film. And what's the one seen... about like 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 the leaves of Satan's book or something like that? It's like some crazy fucking title that sounds very provocative and it sounds very Dreyer esque. Yeah, uh, you, you got the title exactly right. That's uh, yeah. He made oh my god, he made a lot of silent films. The President's the first one, then it's The Parson's Widow, Leaves from Satan's Book, and none of these are like widely available. Oh, that one is like three hours long. Damn. Holy moly. Yeah, this one is in German. D. I, I need to go back and listen to our old episode. I literally cannot remember a shot of Master of the House, but yeah. but, but it happens oftentimes when I'm preparing for these episodes where I'll I'll binge a lot of stuff or see a lot of stuff, and then I kind of have to flush it all out of my brain to make room for whatever the next topic might be. Mm. And so if I, I mean, it's like a sign of like early onset senility. I, qu- I quite literally cannot remember a frame from uh, – actually, now that I'm looking at some stills in IMDb, some of it's coming back to me. And so, yeah, I, I guess yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not completely hopeless yet. That one's good. It's it's probably my least favorite of all the Dreyer films, but everything of his that I've seen, I've liked. He's only made good movies, in my opinion. Granted, I have not seen half of his career because half of it is just kind of hidden uh, in this silent film uh, purgatory, where I'm sure if I looked long enough, I could probably find him on YouTube or something. Well, but part of me always wants to kind of wait, like, oh, I would love to experience for the first time on Blu-ray or 
in the theater, which is even more unlikely because I want to be able to get that chance to see it in the best quality possible. Whereas YouTube, it's probably going to be like a VHS rip where it has like seven pixels per frame. And that's not necessarily the best way to see film. But. Absolutely. Well, when it comes to Dreyer, I mean, making a movie is hard. Making a good movie is incredibly hard. Making a masterpiece is very rare. It doesn't happen often. And I think you can safely say he's got a handful of movies that are at least in the conversation to be regarded as cinematic masterpieces. And whether your taste goes towards Passion of Joan of Arc or your taste goes towards Vampire or your taste goes toward Ordet, or even if your taste goes, goes towards Gertrude, if you've got several films that people keep attaching that, the, the big M word next to, you're doing something very rare, very special. And so once again, I think he is, um, he has earned his, his place amongst the movie gods many times over. And I just can't thank you enough for pitching this topic for wrong reasons. Of course, of course. And one final thought on Dreyer. I don't think it's too often that you have a master of cinema that both had his foot in the silent era and his foot in the sound era, which his classics bridge that gap where he has there classics are a from both. handful of best like yeah. Eisenstein. Who else? Bunuel. Yeah. But even Boonwell only had like two silent films. Yeah, he 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 came in at the tail end of the silent era, but he's really a, a sound filmmaker. But yeah, they're like like Hawks made silent movies, but it's his sound movies that people like. Exactly. Or like I guess Fritz Lang is one of the few. Fritz Lang he has his one yeah. foot in both worlds. But yeah, it's a very short list. That's a, it's an elite list of a murderer's yeah. row of filmmakers. Yeah, because especially in Hollywood, I think a lot of people that made their mark in the silent era couldn't make it in the sound era, and yeah. the, the and ones really... like Ernst Lubitsch. He really needed dialogue to have those sparkling glasses of champagne disguised as movies, and like he really bloomed with 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 the sound and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, it's interesting to seeing which filmmakers flourished in which eras and which ones completely crashed and burned during that transition. Yeah, Hitchcock obviously. I think made good silent films. I think it he had he been older, he probably would have made really big masterpieces in silent film because of how he directs. But because of the fact he was at the tail end there, you know him mostly for his sound yeah. films. It takes until the thirty nine steps before he really gets gets starts cooking with grease. Yeah. Cool. Well it's always a pleasure talking with you about this stuff because yeah, it's it's a sad reality that when it comes to the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, they, they increasingly feel so remote and otherworldly that a lot of people just do not give a flying fuck about this stuff. But for me, it is at the it's at the core of my interest yeah. in movies. This is what got me into movies in the fucking first place. And they for me they shine brighter all the time. So yeah, this this period, you're welcome to come back on Wrong Reel anytime. But I think that 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 Sylvia Pinal Buñuel trilogy sounds like an excellent place to resume. I agree. And we need to get you and John Lominger on an episode together at some point because I feel like y'all are just like two peas in a pod and seem to have a lot of overlap. I pitched to him one time doing Max O'Fools and he's like, oh, I don't like Max O'Fools. I was like, all right, sorry, I'll try someone else. But like Max Max O'Fools is another one of those directors that I really want to get to, but I need to find the the perfect dance partner because for me, Max O'Fools, he's one of those directors who's totally neglected now, but used to be like the inspiration for Kubrick and all these other people. And I feel like his reputation should definitely not go away. Way. I'm trying to think. I've seen uh, Earrings of Madame D. That's a good That's one. That's right? That, that one's good. Earrings of Madame D. At Madame D. Uh, what's the other one that I've seen? Like Lola um, Montez is one of the big ones. That's the other one I've seen. Yeah, the, I, I, I've seen it, but I couldn't tell you what it's about. I just remember being gorgeous and in Technicolor. Letters from an Unknown Woman is my favorite. And you got La Ronde. And, I know uh, a lot of people like La Ronde. And you got Le yeah. Placide. Like, what's I can't pronounce any of these. <laughs> so I had to just have like my made up pronunciations, but I like Maxwell Fool, Maxwell Fools quite a bit. Yeah. 
no, I'll, I'll have to check out some of his movies. And if I'm on board, then we'll have to tackle yeah, that. But too. definitely, you and Lobinger need to uh, to team up on something because I feel like y'all have a similar energy and infectious enthusiasm and a similar passion for film history. And yeah, so that 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 that, that date needs to happen at some point. I'll text him and see if we could find a something to to, to work out what here. What I really would like is to have both of y'all in the flesh post um uh shots and whatnot and have a beer or two and and, and get down and dirty on a particular topic that would be hey, that would be a fun a fun event once once this pandemic is over i will be there excellent well, where can people find you online if they want to shoot the shit about flicks and all that good stuff <sighs> i'm always on twitter at cinema versus dave that is cinema vs dave beautiful well i'm on twitter as well but less so than i used to be since i got my account torn from my hands but i still can be found at wrong reel and we hope you've enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing to the podcast leaving a rating review sharing it with a friend all that good stuff and um the feedback every once in a while i get a note through facebook or twitter where somebody responds to a particular episode that just warms my heart so even if i don't respond but i get inundated with too many inputs on online sometimes but it really does put a special smile on my face and that kind of enthusiasm is what is what keeps the podcast going so we hope you've enjoyed the episode definitely hunt down these movies but more importantly as always onwards and upwards ain't like it used to be but uh, it'll do you know how to whistle don't you steve you just put your lips together and blow